Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, I'm your inner dream monologue and you're fast asleep. So I'll be quick. Great job using the Colgate Optic White Overnight Teeth Whitening Pen before bed. When used as directed, it gives you a visibly whiter smile in just seven days. So while I fly and talk to animals, you're removing teeth stains with ease. Sweet dreams. And when you wake up, keep on living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. Hello and welcome to Slate's Audio Book Club. I'm June Thomas. Today, our club members are discussing Robert Penn Warren's classic political novel, All the King's Men. To introduce the conversation, here's Stephen Metcalf. Hello and welcome to the Slate Audio Book Club. I'm Stephen Metcalf, Slate's uh, critic at large. I'm joined today by Jacob Weisberg, Slate's editor-in-chief. Jacob. Hello, Steve. Thank you. Yeah, great to have you here. And uh, Julia Turner, Slate's culture editor. Hey, Julia. Hi, Steve. Today we're going to talk about a sprawling, challenging, messy, terrifically compelling novel called All the King's Men by Robert Penn Warren. All the King's Men tells the story of Willie Stark, though we'll get to this in a moment. In the edition we're reading today, he's called Willie Talos, but we'll call him Stark for now, who becomes governor of a... He's, it's essentially a Romanoclef version of Huey Long, the governor of Louisiana, though, as Robert Penn Warren was at pains to point out, this is not simply a Romanoclef and certainly expands well beyond the career of Huey Long to tell the story of Willie Stark, who begins as an idealist and as a bit of a dupe, even. He runs for governor of his state as a stalking horse, which he doesn't himself doesn't understand and only later learns that he's been used by the powers that be to split the vote. And along the way to coming to this piece of political knowledge and self-knowledge, he loses his innocence. He wins the governorship by a kind of fluke and uh, becomes an extremely powerful and in Robert Penn Warren's own imagination, almost fascistic figure. This is how uh, Robert Penn Warren felt about Huey Long. And uh, it's about his uh, career and downfall. Now, paralleling that narrative, which I was vaguely familiar with having not read the novel, is a second narrative about Jack Burden. Jack Burden's the narrator of the book. And in addition to being the sort of the great political novel in American letters, it's also sort of the great grad student novel in American <laughs> letters. He begins as a self-loathing grad student of history and becomes a kind of another, another kind of student of history in a way, as he sort of puts it a, a number of times. And he goes from being a grad, self-loathing grad student to a newspaper columnist to a kind of Man Friday, you know, right-hand accompaniment to the governor. And he narrates this rise and fall. But his own story actually turns out to be quite complex. Many spokes fly in and out of it. So it's also the story of Jack Burden, his love affair or would-be love affair with a woman named Ann Stanton, his relationship to a very powerful father figure, as it turns out, Judge Irwin. And it's as much about his loss of innocence as it is Willie Stark's ascension to power. Now, on the issue of what we call Willie Stark, this can lead us into the discussion right away. 
We've read a quote-unquote restored edition. It came out in 2001, and it's uh, published by Harcourt. And it's pieced together, as I understand it, and you guys can chime in and correct me, as I understand it, sort of pieced together from this, like, sort of maelstrom of papers that uh, Robert Penn Warren left after he died, and in an attempt to recreate something like a director's cut or a sort of original intention out of these papers, this restored edition has been produced, and it strikes me not as a kind of uh, definitive final word on this novel, but as a kind of uh, messy Frankenstein of a beast. And the clue to this, we're not literary scholars, and of course we didn't do any sort of, you know, careful, close comparison between the editions, but really the clue is the name. And Jacob, I know you had some feelings about this. It's 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 almost preposterous to take a figure as central and iconic to American literature as Willie Stark and call him something else. Yeah, that that ship has sailed. You know, you it's like going back and saying, well, you know, Huckleberry Finn and some of the early drafts, which are more authentic, uh, you know, Mark Twain was thinking of calling him uh, Ciceroneus. <laughs> you know, it's just we, we've sort of settled that by now. And he's one of the great characters of, of modern American literature. You know, let's just stick with Willie Stark. I mean, I was annoyed at this edition. I don't think we should dwell on it too long. I have read this novel before. You're, you're issued a copy with your first uh, press credential if you cover cover politics. And if you it, – it's, it's okay to read this version. It's not that different. It's not nearly as different as the editor – claims it is. But it does represent sort of my personal editorial nightmare, which is most editing is good editing, in my experience. And Robert Penn Warren, I think, had a pretty good editor who helped him improve his novel a lot. And he accepted that, as you do, Steve, as a writer who takes editing, (laughs) all of those excellent suggestions from his editor. And then for this academic to go back and say, not only was the editor wrong, the writer was wrong to take these suggestions. And his first draft or his submitted draft was somehow better. Uh, And I think in those places where I did notice uh, revision, they were mainly additions, mm-hmm. and they didn't help. They weren't necessary. No, no it makes would, the book longer. No one would ever ask this book to be longer. Yeah. I've only read this edition. This is the first time that I've read it. We should say that it, it is a controversial edition. It's not. It hasn't taken a single step towards becoming the definitive edition. It was roundly denounced by Joyce Carol Oates in a fairly definitive, to my mind, piece in the New York Review of Books. And she pointed out, in addition to what, what you said, which is absolutely right, is she pointed out that Robert Penn Warren, you know, this isn't like trying to piece together Keats's Hyperion or something. <laughs> I mean, Robert Penn Warren lived for a long time after the 46 edition came out. He won a bunch of awards. For, I mean, the theory on the part of Neil Polk, just to beat the dead horse here, is that somehow after winning awards and gaining a lot of praise, Robert Penn Warren just decided to keep his peace and, 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 and live with the public acclaim without causing a stir. This is to impute all kinds of motive to someone who now is, in fact, dead. Anyways, we, I think we agree, Julia, that this is a slightly ridiculous no, academic and it's, exercise. It's, it's funny because it, it has a feel of sort of, you imagine Neil Polk, the academic, discovering this trove of original papers, realizing this would be a great project to piece it together. And there's a moment in the book where uh, Jack Burden is describing how he didn't finish his uh, PhD thesis where he said, I knew the facts of the thing, but I didn't know the truth of the thing. <laughs> and you're, you look at the Polk edition and you think, did you not get the truth of things? <laughs> You've given us the facts and not the truth. That's this edition. There's a first chapter that he – the original first chapter is so bad that he – even this, this editor doesn't dare to put it at the front. He puts it at the back as an appendix. And I read it and I was sort of horrified. I mean it's sort of everything that's brilliant. This is a famous opening to the novel – uh, with this sort of cinematic vision of a you know, car speeding down a highway. It's something you really remember from the book. And he replaces it with this sort of didactic thing that begins, the boss was a son of a bitch. And then he goes on in this sort of purple prose, which Robert Penn Warren occasionally falls prey to, to describe why he was a son of a bitch. And he doesn't have you. you know. And it's, it's sort of, it's interesting in a way to see how the novel improved. Oh, absolutely. Well, um, you've teed me up. I think maybe maybe we'll read the uh, bravura opening, and that will get us into the discussion of the book. Oh, we should say, as a brief preface to actually reading this, that um, there is uh, racial language in the first two pages. We're going to talk about the racial politics and attitudes of the book later, and for now, we're just going to read the words of Robert Penmore. Mason City. You follow Highway 58 going northeast out of the city, and it is a good highway and new, or was new that day we went up it. You look up, a hi- up the highway, and it is straight for miles, coming at you, with the black line down the center coming at you and at you, black and slick and tarry shining against the white of the slab, and the heat dazzles up from the white slab so that only the black line is clear, 
coming at you with the wine of the tires. And if you don't quit staring at that line and don't take a few deep breaths and slap yourself hard on the back of the neck, you'll hypnotize yourself, and you'll come to just at the moment when the right front wheel hooks over into the black dirt shoulder of the slab, and you'll try to jerk her back on, but you can't because the slab is high like a curb. And maybe you'll try to reach to turn off the ignition just as she starts the dive, but you won't make it, of course. Then a nigger chopping cotton a mile away, he'll look up and see the little column of black smoke standing up above the vitriolic arsenical green of the cotton rose and up against the violent metallic throbbing blue of the sky and he'll say lord god hits another one done done hit and the next nigger down the next row he'll say lord god and the first nigger will giggle and the hoe will lift again and the blade will flash in the sun like a heliograph then a few days later the boys from the highway department will mark the spot with a little metal square on a metal rod stuck in the black dirt off the shoulder the metal square painted white and on it in black, a skull and crossbones. Later on, Love Vine will climb up it out of the weeds. And I'll stop there, but I do want to add just one sentence in the next paragraph, which I, which was when I fell in love with the book. We'll later talk about when I fell out of love with it. But, <laughs> for this is the country where the age of the internal combustion engine has come into its own. Anyhow, this gets us into the discussion. I'm, I'm, you're, you're the voice of experience when it comes to both politics in this book, and I'll impute to Julia the voice of innocence when it comes to <laughs> politics in this book. I'm very curious. This book surprised me in, in many, many ways. I'm interested, Julia. Did it surprise you when you finally sat down and read it? It did. It surprised me most of all. You know, I had sort of had it in my mind as kind of the great American political novel, and it surprised me in how little of it was about politics, I thought. In some ways, I think its strongest parts are the parts that are most closely about politics and the parts that veer off into the somewhat melodramatic, in some ways very impressive and compelling and in some ways ridiculous and, and soap operatic uh, story of Jack Burden were less compelling to me. So m- mostly my surprise was just how how little of it was about Willie Stark. Yeah. Now, yeah. Jacob, I'm curious to hear what your reaction was. Is this your second time or third time around with this novel? How did you feel rereading it? I have I, actually not that differently than I did the first time I read it, which is that I do have a love-hate relationship with this book. I think it uh, is brilliant in places on politics, but it has some just overwhelmingly bad qualities. I mean, it's melodramatic, it's gothic, it's lurid, it's filled with this purple prose. It's sort of, I was just thinking as a metaphor, the passage you read, it's speeding down this strip of black highway of good writing, always in danger of hooking its wheels, <laughs> falling off it's exactly until right. crashing in flames. Yeah. You know, and um, it's funny reading it, the thing that kept um, popping into my head this time was Raymond Chandler mm. and the way that the narrator... Jack Burden is like Philip Marlowe. He's this wiseacre. He never he never just say anything straight. It's always got to have this sort of hard-boiled edge. And it gets, you know, after 600 pages, it starts to become seriously irritating. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I thought of it. I, one thought I had going through it sort of the first time around, I was surprised that you were, there's a lot of me, me, sort of mel, attempt, mel, attempts at Melvillian transcendence and metaphysics. He's trying to kind of work out a kind of metaphysics of politics and how we're sort of existentially fallen. And that's why politics is necessary to mediate human affairs. That started out hooking me. And I thought, I thought this is just tremendous. This is the mid-century Melville. And then as soon as it becomes tiresome, you lose your energy for it. And then the book becomes overplotted and melodramatic. And, and at that point, it's just uh, exhausting. You know, I think part of the problem is Robert Perlman was trying to put much too much into this book. Yeah, he was trying to narrate a sort of parable of how fascism might come to America. And one interesting, I don't know much about Robert Penn Warren's biography, or actually very much about Huey Long, but I do know that uh, Penn Warren lived in Italy for a time in the late 1930s during the rise of Mussolini. And he has a, it's a sort of imagining Huey Long as an American fascist figure. Huey yeah. Long wasn't a fascist in the sense of European fascism, but I think that was sort of, he was playing with that idea. Then he was working out all these ideas about the agrarian South and the old order giving way to this new populism and the rise of this new class in the South, which Robert Penn Warren is a kind of Southern patrician, obviously objected to in certain ways. He had, as you were referring to, all his sort of grad student ideas about history and mm-hmm. the nature of history. And he was, you know, imitating six different writers. And, I mean, it's amazing the book is as good as it is, but I think it was sort of everything he was interested in in his life up to this point he tried to work into this novel. Yeah, it's over full. But, I mean, I think the question is sort of to what degree does... To, at what point do Jack's sort of musings on human nature 
initially it seems like they might actually help us understand the point that Penn Warren is trying to make about politics and the nature of politics and and why things are the way they are. And then at a certain point, it just becomes almost ridiculous, and you wish he would just shut his trap. I had trouble pinpointing sort of when that was in the novel. And the classic, you know, sort of political story told in this way, and this has been a model for, you know, among other books, Primary Colors, Joe Klein modeled it directly on All the President's Men. But in that simpler version, you have the somewhat naive aide looking at the boss and growing progressively disillusioned and then maybe coming to some sort of acceptance about um, the mixed motives people have in politics and, and how their bad behavior is tied up with their, with their good instincts. Here, the narrator is such a cynic from the outset, and then at the, towards the end of the book, he comes back to a, a, a sort of um, more sympathetic reading of humanity and actually at the end comes to see this this tyrant as a kind of kind of hero but it's interesting it's sort of hard it's interesting that the portrait of the politician comes through through such a a kind of caustic lens that's right yeah and this isn't a story of innocence lost in in some in some sense it's more a sort of story about I think Robert Penn Warren had a kind of and, and copped to a sort of schematic idea about Willie Stark as the man of action and Burden as potentially sort of a man of knowledge or thought and how these two might interact or might not interact. And it's, you know, Burden tries to kind of maintain some degree of innocence by, by claiming that ignorance is a successful shield. He talks about a voter. What a voter doesn't know has never hurt them. And his own ability to sort of look, there's an extraordinary scene when he goes and visits the farm of Willie Stark. And there, uh, there's a photographer who's come to accompany them. And there's this very George W. Bush moment at the ranch where they're kind of producing the shot. They're producing this image of Willie Stark as a kind of rural, happy rural bumpkin who goes into politics only because he has to or whatever. And they take these photographs of him with hogs and various other things and pouring over his law books and a monastic study in the house. And along the way to that, Burden, I think, wanders out into the yard. And there's this reflective moment where he's kind of hashing these things over in his head in that sort of cynical way. And then I think he hears Stark come up, our talus come up behind him. And it's sort of he has this remarkable moment where he says, but I won't look. And this is somehow my capacity to know at what moment not to turn around and look at what is exactly going on at the sausage making is what has preserved at least some degree of humanity. What struck me about the novel stylistically and in terms of its sort of literary and rhetorical energies was it's kind of in a way the last 19th century American novel in a way, even though it appears in the mid-century. And it is drawing upon Melville and then, of course, Faulkner in the early 20th century and and early decades of the 20th century. But it's sort of the last novel before, a great American novel before Augie March, maybe, and before a certain kind of urbanity finds itself comfortable, comfortably expressed in the American idiom. And so there's a way in which the tonalities of this come out of Melville or William Dean Howells or uh, Fall of Silas Marner, sort of this kind of deeply retributive, overwrought sort of conscience, you know, puritanical conscience and a, and a need to sort of achieve a kind of metaphysical understanding of what it means to be either innocent or corrupt. And this is kind of at its it's at its most sort of sweltering expression because it's about to seed, give way to the 1950s and Bellow and then eventually a decade after that, Roth. And then the second thing was, was anyone surprised at how much of a road novel this was? I mean, not only the beginning, and then there are several scenes in which people, people are driving everywhere in this book. They're always going, getting in a car and they need to go get, talk to someone in order to strong arm them or manipulate them. And they're driving several hours. And then, of course, there's the whole California uh, sideshow where he, he, drives out to California. It sort of also, it, it prefigures Kerouac in a way that I was completely surprised by, taken by surprise. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's amazing the sheer number of writers who appear, who, who are sort of channeled in this book from before and after it. I loved, my favorite driving scene in the book is the one where he's driving from Burden's Landing, where his family lives, um, and where he's just had this sort of contentious conversation, which I think suggests that he's maybe not as much of a cynic. All, I, I think he actually sort of pulled in and finds himself hopeful that uh, Willie Stark's means of politics might actually get more done than the politics that had existed in the state beforehand. So he's with his patrician family and neighbors and who, you know, the, the sort of equally corrupt 
but more couth about it. This is the Stantons? Uh, yeah, the, the Stantons. So he he's from Burden's Landing, where the previous governor's family is, where his family is, a long line of, of uh, sort of patricians of the state who run the state for years, who are shocked and horrified at what Willie Stark has wrought. And Jack Burden, over the, and they're sort of uh, over, the, over a long evening of drinks, just sort of decrying what Willie Stark has done. And Jack Burden begins to feel a bit strange, like, this is my boss and this is what I do. Why are all these people, you know, denigrating him in front of me? And then he realizes that they, they don't possibly believe that he could actually believe in Willie Stark at all. And I think it's a moment where he begins to realize that he maybe does believe in what Willie Stark is doing in oh, some way. Yeah. He begins to sort of realize how much his own view of the world has been changed by what he's he's just... He tries to think of as just work, the where he's ignoring what actually is going on. And after this this night, he drives um, back from Burden's Landing to the city, where he's been called by the governor to on, on some sort of business. And there's this great driving passage where he talks about how when you're in the car, you've left behind the you that you have to be for the people that you were with, and mm. you haven't yet gotten to the you that you are with the people that you're going to. And so there's no you at all, and it's you're selfless. And it's it's um, I think it's appropriate that it falls right at that moment, but also just a great a great driving scene, much better than the long driving to California scene, which was a little over the top for me, I thought. Yeah, I agree. Let's talk about Burden a little more. I mean, I, I find him th- sort of a, a mystifying character in certain ways. He clearly goes into these depressive periods, which he describes in retrospect. And when he does, when he gets depressed or upset, is he either goes on a long driving trip to lose himself in the road, or he sleeps. And he describes after the failure of his first marriage and after he dropped out of graduate school, going through these periods of life where he essentially just became narcoleptic, just slept all day long, shut down. But then another aspect of his personality is he is so cynical that he won't give anybody any satisfaction at any point. So originally, the, the, the early Willie Stark is not exactly an idealist character, but is clearly sort of a force for the better in his depraved world of Southern politics. You know, he, he rises to fame because he opposes this corrupt deal to build a school building in Mason City with a kind of insider contract. And he loses the election because he opposes the gang that runs the town. And then when the b- part of the building falls down and some school children are killed, he then becomes this prophetic hero. He's pushed into the – talking about Willie Stark now – he's pushed into his first campaign for governor, as he said, as a stalking horse. It's a kind of uh, – it's sort of set up as a fool um, and then sort of finds – when he figures out what's happening to him, sort of finds his voice. The early w- Willie Stark is very appealing. But Jack Burden, although he comes to work for him and must admire him in some ways – never acknowledges that he admires him or sees himself identified. He goes to work with Willie Stark, work for him after he becomes governor, and Stark is becoming increasingly corrupt. And Burden will sort of never identify with any side in the argument. He won't defend him. He won't attack him. All he'll do is kind of constantly make these sarcastic remarks about everything and everybody. And it's very – I mean, what did you think about him as a character, Steve? I just – I find it sort of mystifying that he is so removed that you can't sort of pin down where he stands. I felt almost exactly the same way. I mean, it's – the central surprise of the book to me was the degree to which Burden really dominated the narrative. It's almost like Ishmael and Ahab. And in, you know, in Moby Dick, Ahab is – the source of the sort of energy of the book and the whale is the source of the mystery of the book, but the but the novel is really driven by the the voice of Ishmael and it success, succeeds, you know, obviously massively because of that. And this book, it's sort of the same thing. I was surprised at how little of the book is actually about Willie Stark. And early on, there was some sense that the nitty-gritty of politics was going to be the substance of the book. But later on, a lot of that just becomes sort of expository necessity, and there are very quick descriptions of kind of seamy deals and et cetera, et cetera. And I felt like the arc of Willie Starks, I agree that he doesn't begin in total innocence, or if he does, that's virtually irrelevant to the narrative. But but certainly what's interesting about the book as a as a kind of artifact of American politics or, an, you know, sort of embodying an attitude towards American politics is that... To get anything done, the book suggests, there's a degree of compromise, to put it politely, and perhaps a degree of dirt or corruption in order to really get anything consequentially done, that that, that the sausage making is genuinely ugly, and that you're never – that once you, – you have to have the maturity, the intellectual maturity to know that failing to draw a bright line between – 
good and bad or good government and bad government or whatever, you then don't completely give yourself over to corruption and bad government in a way. And uh, and I thought that lesson was, was quite persuasive. At the same time, I wanted kind of more Willie and less Jack. I mean, Willie has this sort of wonderful philosophy of life, which he hews to through the book. And in his, his famous, you know, the most famous lines from the book, man is conceived in sin and born in corruption. He patheth from the stench of the deity to the stink of the shroud. There's always something. You can find, because because human nature is fallen and corrupt, you can always find dirt on somebody and politics is dirty and everyone is dirty yeah. um, and he makes you know he works from within that view of human nature and and we should point out that there are characters in the book uh, principally Adam Stanton who's the brother of Anne Stanton with whom Burden has been in love for most of his adult life they knew each other as children and Adam is this figure of sort of you know the sort of immaculate patrician character is sort of what he's meant to embody, and he's a doctor and a do-gooder and a good tennis player, and you know he's sort of the wasp to end all wasps. And he also doesn't want to get his hands dirty. He doesn't. He loathes the very idea of Willie Stark. And one of the important plot points of the novel is convincing Adam to involve himself in public life by becoming the head of a hospital that Willie Stark has uh, used all of his political chits to get built. Why don't we hear Willie Stark's voice a little bit? Jacob, can you read from one of the famous uh, rally scenes in the novel? Yeah, I've got, I've got a passage marked here. And this is, um, I think, probably the best illustration in the book of Penn Warren's idea of American fascism, describing this rally outside at floodlit and Jack Burden and both Stantons are standing there watching them. And the roar came again and died away again under his hand. He said, they tried to ruin me because they didn't like what I have done. Do you like what I have done? The roar came and died. He said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to build a hospital, the biggest and finest money can buy. It will belong to you. Any man or woman or child who is sick or in pain can go in those doors and know that all will be done that man can do to heal sickness, to ease pain, free, not as charity, but as right. It's your right. Do you hear? It's your right. The roar came. Then I'll just skip a little bit. He goes on to sort of say the same thing about the right to education that these poor people who are his followers have. And uh, and Anne Stanton is acting Jack, Jack Burden. Does, does Willie Stark really believe what he's saying? And Jack Burden basically says he thinks he does. And Willie Stark goes on. He said, I'll do those things, so help me God. I shall live in your will and your right. And if any man tries to stop me in fulfilling that right, I'll break him. I'll break him like that. He spread his arms far apart, shoulder high, and crashed the right fist into the left palm. Like that, I'll smite him. Hip and thigh, shin bone, neck bone, kidney punch, rabbit punch, uppercut, solar plexus, and I don't care what I hit him with or how. And in the midst of the roar, I leaned towards Anne's, Anne's ear and yelled, he damn well means that. And the speech culminates in the following. The crowd roared. He brought both hands slowly together for silence. Then he said, your will is my strength. And after a moment of silence said, your need is my justice. Then that is all. Does that send tingles down your spine? <laughs> Do you think fascism come to, could have come to America in the 1930s versus, via that kind of populism? I think we're – a regional fascism of the kind that Huey Long represented. But we're all too suspicious of one another to form a Volk. You know, a single Volk. And and in that sense, in small corners of America, I think that kind of fascism can and still thrives, you know, ward politics and boss tweeds and, and that sort of thing. But as a national phenomenon, I think it comes out in these kind of sanitized, vaguely nativist sort of Pat Buchanan style culture war BS that disappears. I mean, it its energies dissipate quickly at the national level. Did you find that Willie was a compelling character throughout the entire book or... Did you want more Willie, less Jack? I did think he was compelling. I, but on the fascism point, uh, just before we move on, the thing that I – I found that scene compelling and it's sort of an interesting micro-portrait of how that might happen. But within the larger structure of the book, I found the sort of drive to say something about fascism and the drive to say something about 
slavery and its corrupting effect on the soul of the South to be somewhat at war with each other. And in a way, they seem like two narratives that were unrelated, that were being melded together by this sort of hypnotic prose. And it it kind of works if you don't think about it too hard. But I think when you start to pull apart the key slavery narrative in the book, which is the subject of Jack Burden's dissertation, which there's sort of a long passage in the middle where he describes this dark, gothic, Faulkner-esque tale, the parts didn't mesh for me somehow. And that, that kind of undercut those scenes for me. There's sort of a novel within the novel right in the middle of the book, which is sort of his uncompleted thesis about these relatives of his who were these Civil War romantic Southern characters, what two brothers, one of whom is comes to oppose slavery, partly as the result of having this disastrous affair with, with with a woman. But I mean, what did you think of the racial attitudes in the book? I mean, my, my sense was that, and I, I was it struck me reading it the second time, pretty utterly unenlightened. Partly because the character it, it's based on Huey Long was in some ways of an enlightened character for his region. He That's had he had. Negro support, as they called, as he called it, he was not someone who who kind of didn't pit. Although he was a populist, he didn't pit lower class whites against lower class blacks. He believed in segregation, but he thought there should be jobs. There should be chicken in every pot. There should be jobs for for blacks in Louisiana too. And um, Penn Warren doesn't seem to kind of get at that at all. I mean, he doesn't make that one of uh, Willie Stark's good qualities. He doesn't enumerate that. And his references to to blacks in the book, you know, I mean, he his characters use terms nigger and spick indiscriminately. Mm-hmm. But there's no, you know, I didn't pick up any sense that Robert Penn Warren was distancing himself from that view of the world. Well, except for that, the, that, that central passage of the book. Uh, so basically, the the um, the dissertation Jack's dissertation the story is uh, there are these two Civil War brothers one of whom has an affair with his friend's wife when the husband finds out he kills himself but and before he can, and, and does it in such a way that nobody in the community will know it was anything but an accident he sets it up as though he's been cleaning his guns but he leaves his wedding ring under the pillow before he does this so that his wife the woman who's cuckolded him will know and this woman's slave finds the ring. And because she knows and because the the adulteress thinks she'll talk and she'll tell the whole town, she sells her downriver, you know, where it's assumed she'll she'll be raped and and she sells her away from her the, the slave away from her husband. And this so consumes the character at the center of Jack's dissertation. I mean it's it's just this very central story in the book. So I don't quite see how this I mean, it's sort of the greatest sin is the book is this is this inadvertent selling of of the slave woman down the river. So I don't. It, I mean, it's almost is it like he's sort of imitating Faulkner, but doesn't get it, or is well, I, I don't know. I mean, my my sense is so Jack Burden, our narrator, identifies with with Cass Masterson, the figure at the center of this this Civil War era narrative. And the way he seems to identify him as Kath Masterson is someone who sinned terribly by pursuing his passion for this woman. Her husband kills himself. So he's caused someone to commit suicide and then it, through other sort of inadvertent consequences causes other people to die and sort of brings about all this tragedy. And then in the end sort of admits what he's done wrong and lives out this his own sort of ethical ideal, including freeing all of his slaves and paying them to work on his cotton pl- plantation, which everybody thinks is an absurd r- romantic notion just at the time of, of the Civil War. So Jack Burden seems to identify with this scenario by the end of the book because he's done this, these terrible things. He's caused this man to kill himself. He's caused other people ultimately to be killed. And in the end, he essentially says, I'm not going to sin anymore. But it wasn't clear to me that there was any identification with the racial view expressed by Cass Masterson. I mean, obviously, Robert Penn Warren thinks slavery is a terrible sin, and he's not a romantic Southerner in that sense. But he didn't seem to me to be questioning or undermining segregation or the idea of white racial superiority in any sense. Right. And it should be said that he was a – Robert Penn Warren was a southern agrarian of the sort of, I think, John Crow Ransom, I think Donald Davidson – not Donald Davidson. Um, who were the other ones? Tate – it was Tate. Alan and Tate. Alan Tate, uh, John Crow Ransom, and Robert Penn Warren were the three big ones. They produced a volume called I Think I'll Take My Stand yeah. maybe in the 20s. Yeah as early as the 20s. 
And in it, Robert Penn Warren's contribution is a pro-segregationist one. And then over time, he developed more enlightened attitudes, though I think more in the 50s and 60s as, as civil rights. And then he became very active and very vocal and edited volumes of essays by African-Americans and was really yeah. looking to... But this book probably falls, I think, somewhat before that. And that's, We I started think, working on it in the 30s, published in 1946. I mean, I, I think probably the best thing you can say for it is that he, he was on his way to a more yeah. enlightened point of view and hadn't, hadn't gone there yet. Yeah. yeah. And is there some sense with that episode with Cass, his sort of ancestor, that he's looking to history as this grad student and looking to his own family history for some so for a noble act, and what he finds behind it is it's actually sort of tainted by ill motives and adultery. And, and this is why the voice at the beginning of the book is cynical. This is why we don't get this arc with Jack from sort of innocence to experience. But he starts out sort of kind of already deeply jaded from the beginning of the novel. Like this is, In other words, this is a sort of central episode in his education as a person, and it precedes the action of the book, even though in the actual book appears midway through. Does Jack have a moment of innocence, uh, which he describes almost towards the end of the book, where um, there's one summer where Jack and Anne Stanton, the object of his desires, are romantically entwined, and finally at the very end of the summer, she is about to allow him to sleep with her, and he stops. He can't. And I think it's sort of this weird, it is the one weird moment of innocence in Jack Burden where he, he sort of sees her face as the you know, 17-year-old woman that he's been in love with all summer, but simultaneously sees her as the 13-year-old girl that he knew and grew up with. And despite the fact that he's undressed her and she's naked in his bedroom and his mother is ostensibly on a trip miles away to gamble and won't be home till 2 in the morning, he says, oh, Anne, oh, Anne. And then he can't, nothing happens. And then the car pulls up, the, the mother has come back, you know, he runs downstairs and shuffles her into the bathroom and she pretends to have been on the toilet and then nothing is ever the same between them again. And so in some ways, it's this one moment of innocence sort of ruins the love of his life. And I'm not sure it's a moment of chivalrous compunction, you know, which is this sort of southern strain and goes back to the sort of Cass Masterson idea, you know, this idea of the, the southern gentleman. And he, he seems to have some insecurity about his family background and how much he belongs in, the, in that class. And that's part of, you know, one of the tensions in the novel seems to be between his, he's, he's partly from this old southern aristocratic family, but he doesn't really know who his father is. And his mother actually grew up dirt poor in Arkansas and married into this Burden family. And th that he goes over and identifies with Willie Stark, the poor populist man of the people, kind of speaks to this conflict that runs through his, his life. Yeah, and we've picked up on two big things that take over the novel for the second half of it. The first being the question of his paternity, his who his father is, which wends its way through the Stanton story to this other character, Judge Irwin, yeah. I believe, and then a second narrative thread which comes to dominate, which is the love story with Anne Stanton. And both are attempts at sort of grasping at a notion of kind of innocence, like sort of paternal innocence on one hand or romantic innocence on the other. And if if you were to cease making a defense of this novel, I can't point to the exact page where it lost me a little bit. But um, you certainly – these two stories start to careen out of control over the last third and suddenly it becomes bizarrely overplotted and they're all of what it, they call in Hollywood reveals, one reveal after another and the two biggest ones involving Judge Irwin and Ann Stanton. So why don't we talk a little bit about this? There are these wonderful pastoral and ev evocative passages about this summer, this magical summer he spends with the Stanton children and Governor Stanton is this admirable figure. But early on, one of the things that inaugurates the compelling action of the novel is he's asked by Willie Stark to dig up some dirt on one of the town elders of Burden's Landing, this man, Judge Irwin, for whom he has, you know, a re relatively intact uh, respect. And uh, Judge Irwin has decided to um, endorse Willie Stark's opponent. And uh, Stark essentially turns to uh, Burden and says, let's, let's, you, you find it. It's there. You find it. And and Burden actually doesn't think it's there, interestingly. I don't know if he's particularly innocent in this regard or whatever, whether this represents some redoubt of innocence inside of him. But he believes that you won't be able to find this on Judge Irwin. And some of the actual tight narrative and compelling plotting of the book involves his attempt to go and find out what in this long life Judge Irwin has done that he will be so ashamed of. It will 
act as raw material for for blackmail. So why don't we talk a little bit about these two narrative strains? I mean, it, I thought I found that potentially quite interesting until you find out that Judge Irwin is his father. And at that point, it started to fall apart for me. So why don't we start with that a little bit and and talk a little bit about sort of Judge Irwin and the idea of the of this is this is a heavily mid-century book. It's it's yeah. filled with all kinds of self-conscious Oedipal gestures. It gets so gothic, Steve. I mean, it lacks only for incest. And even <laughs> even that is vaguely implied between that's Adam gonna, Stanton and his That's going to be in the new restored version. Right. It's actually <laughs> exactly. forthcoming. But, um, and so that's, you know, but on the other hand, it, it, it holds your attention, especially in places like that sort of murder mystery plot where he's investigating, he's tracking down Judge Irwin, you know, proving Willie Stark's point that there's always something, that every, everybody is dirty. But the interesting idea that sort of drives all of this, at least to me, is does the truth liberate you or does the truth wreck your life? And this is obviously what ended his career as a grad student, too, is he couldn't quite resolve this problem. He was driving for the truth, in that case, couldn't get to the truth. And now he has this compulsion. Jack Burden, now the the, uh, man who's working for Willie Stark, has this compulsion. I mean, why does he want to investigate Judge Irwin? What what drives him to do it? It, Obviously, he has this idea that he has to get to the truth. And the worst thing he does is not find out the truth about Judge Burden himself, but share it with his best friends in the world, Adam and Ann Stanton, because part of the story is that their father, this governor who died, who they regard as this sort of holy figure, help Judge Irwin in this corrupt moment. So he reveals the truth, destroying the image his two closest friends have of their father. And it basically contributes to wrecking their life. And then when he finds out about Judge Irwin, causes Judge Irwin to kill himself, and nothing good comes from all this truth, but he has this need to pursue it. And then there's this moment at the end of the book where his mother asks for the truth, about Judge Irwin. Essentially, did you drive Judge Irwin to suicide? And finally, uh, Jack lies <laughs> and says him. no. Yeah. And, it. So, and then the, but there's this it's sort of this tension running through the book, and it is sort of the, the sort of historian's dilemma. Is the, is the pursuit of truth a good in itself that, you know, you have to know because it's the truth, or do we need certain, certain lies, at least white lies, to live with ourselves? And what's so great is the white lie that he tells could be interpreted as entirely self-serving. I mean, it may not represent a moment of sort of, yeah. uh, you know, hermeneutic maturity vis-a-vis <laughs> truth-telling. Um, but uh, so, Julia, why don't you read a passage sort of towards the end of the book that gives us some of the flavor of Jack Burden's language, but also his attempt to come at these things through, you know, rather inflated philosophical rhetoric. (laughs) This is uh, almost at the very, very close of the book. Jack writes, This has been the story of Willie Talos, but it is my story too. For I have a story. It is the story of a man who lived in the world, and to him the world looked one way for a long time, and then it looked another in very different way. The change did not happen all at once. Many things happened, and that man did not know when he had any responsibility for them and when he did not. There was, in fact, a time when he came to believe that nobody had any responsibility for anything, and there was no God but the great twitch. At first that thought was horrible to him when it was forced on him by what seemed the accident of circumstance, for it seemed to rob him of a memory by which unconsciously he had lived. But then it gave him a sort of satisfaction, because it meant that he could not be called guilty of anything, not even of having squandered happiness or of having killed his father. But later, much later... He woke up one morning to discover that he did not believe in the great twitch anymore. I couldn't help but reading it with a little bit of an <laughs> ironic inflection. I'm sorry. You had a bit of a twitch yourself. But. <laughs> you know, it's going to take more irony than that to cut through the butterfat. Uh, I, mean, but I was trying to do it straight. Does anyone want to give me a gloss on what they think the great twitch is? Well, I think the if I read it right, the great twitch is the opposite of free will. I mean, the great twitch is is an is the idea that life is ruled either by randomness or some form of determinism. Hence, people aren't in control of their actions and aren't responsible for their actions. And I think he's saying there that you know he that was sort of his justification for a long time. But it's a, the world's a pretty empty place if no one has any responsibility for anything. And then he came back around to the idea of free will. But you know, I think this goes to your point a little bit about the some 
somewhat bloated quality of this novel, that is a very large idea to start developing on page 605. <laughs> you know, and you know, you didn't I did have the sense that that Jack Burden was torn about this idea of pursuing the truth history, but I did not have the idea that he was divided about the concept of free will for his whole life. And I don't know, I sort of felt I, th- I thought it was a, not a bad expression of that concept, but it was sort of um it sort of parachuted in at the at the 11th hour. Yeah. Well, and we're, since we're talking about the sort of end of the book, he does get the girl for whatever else <laughs> happens in the book. And how he gets her is a rather incredible labyrinth of coincidences and revelations. Julia, how did you feel about this Anne Stanton story? It's sort of revelation number one is that Judge Irwin is his father, which leads to Judge Irwin's suicide. And then there's a second revelation at the heart of the book, which is that Anne Stanton has become Willie Stark's mistress. And it and it's this realization that uh, that wrecks Jack, basically, and causes him to drive all the way to California and stay there for a day and drink a bottle of bourbon and drive back. Um, <laughs> at which point... I have days like that. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what you were doing in London? <laughs> um, but... You know, I, I think actually part of the trouble for me at, with this book is that Anne is just a completely – she's a different character every time you encounter okay. her. She's – there's no center to her. She's – and in some ways this works because she's so much a figure of Jack's imagination. He sort of – Penn Warren comes in at the end and has Jack say something like, oh, I was just making her up all along, which sort of accounts for what a different person she seems throughout the book, but not quite. The most interesting thing to me about her um, – role in Jack's life is that she there's this moment where as a 17 year old girl in their summer of uh, hot and heavy hand holding um, <laughs> heavy petting <laughs> exactly um, she asks him what he what he's going to do with his life and she doesn't care if he wants to do something that will make him no money and they'll be poor and eat red beans and she doesn't care if he wants to do something that makes him rich but she wants him to have like ambition or some kind of goal and in the end you have the sense that she doesn't marry him because because she feels that he doesn't have any ambition. And he is too, you, she says to him, you are what you are. I can't marry you because you are what you are, Jack. And it echoes a scene earlier in the book where uh, Willie, he's talking to Willie Stark about why he works for him. And Willie says, the reason you work for me is because I am who I am and you are who you are. So there is this sense of, of almost determinism of personality somehow in the book. And the thing I didn't like about the ending where he ends up tidally with Anne in the in the mansion is that there is this sense that Anne was right and that once he realized that he should take in his the, the person he grew up believing was his father and had long sort of loathed, once he actually made an action toward him and brought him into the house and finished his dissertation finally and, uh, you know, got the girl, it was all going to work out. It was as though really it was, you know, really the central problem of the book was Jack not having enough willpower to finish his dissertation <laughs> or make anything of himself, which doesn't feel to me to be a satisfactory conclusion to what this book is really about. I think it's a problem because we're meant to like Jack Burden, but he's unbearable. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think the the author admires his narrator in a way the reader doesn't. Right. Yeah. Is, is that is that plausible? I think that that's that's yeah that's one of the hurdles you have to very high hurdles you have to get beyond is, is his dislikability. What characters did you? Let me ask you both. What, who's your favorite character, if any, in the book? Julia, you go first. I love Sadie Burke, who is the uh, pockmarked faced uh, aide and first mistress of uh, Willie Stark. And who's sort of this? She's a kind of fast-talking, messy dame with sawed-off right. black hair. And um, every every woman in this book has black eyes. Also, <laughs> he will not shut up about women's and their dark black eyes, their smoky eyes, their jet burner eyes, their her lamps. She was Sadie Burke is always turning her lamps on him. But I liked I liked her just because she seemed you know sort of out of a out of a fast talking forties political caper or something like that. She has a good character. I love yeah. Tiny Duffy. And in fact, I mean for me, we've spent all this time on kind of the mechanics of plot and the occasionally purple prose, but the thing to me that makes this book such a delight is how good the prose is when it doesn't veer off yeah, the side no, of the no, road. No, 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 and when we shouldn't lose sight of that. And, and Jacob, and you said fact, something. Oh. My um well I just want to read this description of Tiny Duffy's face. Tiny Duffy is another great character. He's sort of a, been around the state's crappy politics for years. He just f- wiggles his way into whichever regime is in power. He's unkillable. And um, there's this moment where we first meet Tiny and his face. Um, here, why don't you ask Jacob your question? Well, I was just going to quote it. you from earlier in your office when you said it has all the qualities of a great novel and all the qualities of an awful novel. And it just does. It, it certainly, it's, it's, 
it's no accident that this novel is sort of central to the American canon, regardless of its flaws, and that this character has become absolutely iconic along with Jay Gatsby and Ahab and Huck Finn. And it's just a shame that it gets lost in prolix philosophical ramblings and completely preposterous plot twists. Do you want Tiny Duffy's face or do you want to quickly say what you Oh, no, I want to hear Tiny Duffy's face. I don't want to hear your favorite character. (laughs) (laughs) We'll get to your favorite character in a second. But um, uh, there was Tiny Duffy who was almost as big back then as he was to get to be. He didn't need any sign to let you know what he was. If the wind was right, you knew he was a city hall slob long before you could see the whites of his eyes. He had the belly and he sweated through his shirt just above the belt buckle and he had the face which was creamed and curded like a cow patty in a spring pasture only it was the color of biscuit dough and in the middle was his grin with the gold teeth. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I think my favorite character is, is and I, it's, I, I didn't love very many characters in this book or even really like or respond to any of them. Judge Irwin, I kind of I mean, until you find out that he's his father, I kind of love this crusty old, you know, man kind of creaking to his doorway in the middle of the night. And every time he sees Jack Burden, even though it's two in the morning and he's accompanied by henchmen, he says, Jack, won't you come in? Because this is exactly the person I aspire to be. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. He's sleeping, I think, half the time you come visit him, regardless of what time of day it is also. It's been his big old plantation house on the the ocean. uh, Well, my favorite character, not not the most admirable, but the most indelible, I think, is Sugar Boy, who is is the driver of Willie Stark and he's this little ferrety looking guy who's always sucking on sugar cubes and has a horrible stutter and he drives like a maniac across these highways all the time. He's always whizzing by, you know, cars by one inch at 80 miles an hour and he's the bastard. <laughs> and uh, he, you know, but it's sort of uh, I mean, it's interesting, Julia p- picked out Tiny Duffy and Sadie Burke. The book is very good about these sort of people on the on the fringes of politics and all these people who are drawn into a political machine and that's why steve i think this book has this has had this longevity yeah. if this were not a novel about politics if it were a novel about medicine or you know about business or about golf it might not be read now but he he somehow pen warren really had an eye and an ear for the nuances of politics and the contradictions of politics. And, I, and correct me if I'm wrong, but he leaves you with the impression that in politics, all choices are bad choices. And part of human maturity is realizing that you're searching for the least bad choice. I think that probably describes his his philosophy, political philosophy. So here's my question, not to force things too much, <laughs> but in this uh, political season of incredible idealism and uh, the political candidate... Uh, who promises to go in and change the way things are done. What would Robert Penn Warren make of Barack Obama? Well, I don't know. I mean, uh, I don't think there's any Willie Stark-like character in this year's contest. I do think Bill Clinton was in some respects a a Willie Stark-like character. But even Hillary Clinton isn't. I mean, there's no, no. Um, you know, in some ways we don't have that that kind of contradiction and, and richness. And, you know, you don't have the sense of kind of, even as good as this campaign is, you don't have the sense of this sort of uh, titanic social forces and conflict that you get reading this novel. I agree. Though I was interested to find that the early Willie Stark was Hillary Clinton in the sense that he gives these god-awful, boring speeches detailing micro-policies about tax. He's a wonk. He starts as a wonk. And it's all about getting him to connect to his gut in some primal way, which he learns to do, and Hillary Clinton didn't, but... Anyways, well, but in which he has somewhat, I think, more than more than she initially did. But well, on that note, uh, we'll conclude. Thank you both. This was a total delight. Thanks. Thank For you, Steve. Jacob Weisberg and Julia Turner. I'm Stephen Metcalf. You've been listening to the Slate Audio Book Club. Thanks so much for joining us. Next month, the Audio Book Club members will discuss Charles Bock's new novel, Beautiful Children. We'll post that discussion in April. If you have any comments about the Audio Book Club, send them to podcasts at slate.com. For slate.com, I'm June Thomas.